All right, we probably all use some amount of plastic in our day-to-day lives. And I'm hoping, I'm guessing, we're also quite careful as to how much plastic we throw away, how much, uh, where we throw it away, making sure as much as we can that it doesn't end up in our oceans. We're pretty good in Canada. We've got a pretty good system when it comes to recycling and when it comes to incinerating and not dumping our garbage in the ocean. Uh, We've talked a bit about plastic bag bans here in uh, parts of BC. Victoria uh, tried to bring it in. They are now uh, dealing with a bit of a court battle, making that happen. This past week, Nova Scotia was the next to move to ban most single-use plastic bags at store checkouts. The government in Nova Scotia introduced a bill banning the bags. The Environment Minister, Gordon Wilson, in Nova Scotia says this is a step in creating less plastic pollution. This is going to change the way that Nova Scotians go to the grocery store. We know there's uh, 325, 350,000 households in Nova Scotia, and if you think that there might be 10 plastic bags in each one, that's millions of bags that we're taking out of uh, landfills, taking uh, away from curbside waste that we have. The government in Nova Scotia says that after the bill passes, industry will have one year to prepare under the proposed law. Retailers would still be allowed to use single-use plastic bags for things like fresh fish and bulk items. I'm curious if you have reduced the use of plastic bags or plastics in your household. Have you stopped using straws and made an effort to really reduce the amount of plastic? Give me a call on the buzz line and let me know because we're going to talk a bit more about this right now with Mike Drolet, who is a global news, a global national correspondent joining us. Uh, he works out of the Toronto Bureau. He has been working on a two-part series about plastic in our water and some fascinating research that's being done right here in Canada when it comes to getting the plastics out of the oceans. And Mike Drolet joins me on the line. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. Uh, Talk a bit about this research that's being done because uh, there's two issues, uh, I'm guessing. One is curbing plastic use and keeping out of the oceans, but we also have to deal with the plastic that's already there. Well, first thing, this is quite possibly the environmental disaster of our time. And we don't, and a lot of people don't even know it because you can't see it for the most part because the microplastics in the water are being found everywhere. Uh, they're they're finding them in um, they're finding them in the ice in the Arctic. They're finding them in the air in the snow actually the drop that falls from the sky in the Arctic, which is terrifying. And they've been able to date this stuff back to the 1970s. The amount of plastic in the ocean is staggering. It's we're dumping 8 million tons of plastic every year. And guess what? 70% of it eventually sinks to the bottom. And a lot of it degrades and becomes these microplastics. So that's the problem. And it's everywhere. And um, we actually, and, and while the biggest polluters are in Asia, China is the absolute worst in terms of volume, we can't exactly get on our, our, on our high horse and think that we're much better because per capita, nobody wastes more than Canadians. No, nobody not even the U.S., which we always think of as such a wasteful society. Uh, so that's, that's sort of a national embarrassment right there. So in terms of what's being done, there's all these little things being done. There's shoreline cleanups, which you see all the time. The Vancouver Aquarium is, uh, is doing some remarkable things with that. Um, and, you know, there's the people who make those little bracelets uh, the, because they, they grab plastic from the ocean. But that's really just like sort of small potatoes. Uh, what really needs to be done is getting rid of these uh, large garbage patches in the oceans. There are five, they call them gyres, 
which are oceanographic current systems within the oceans. And uh, those five gyres have a staggering amount of garbage just sort of sitting there. Um, the largest one is the size of Quebec hmm. north in the North Pacific, which is just absolutely crazy. So people have done various things with like trying to get rid of this stuff. But <clears throat> the biggest problem has always been you pull it out of the ocean, but then what do you do with it? You just throw it in, the, in like a hole somewhere? Well, because we don't really process plastic that well. Uh, under 8% of all the plastic that we collect in our recycling bins gets processed and gets recycling. The rest of it gets thrown into landfill, which is, again, another embarrassment. So that people have come up with these various technologies. There's one that's called uh, paralysis. There's another one called hydrothermal liquefaction. And that's the one a Canadian entrepreneur by the name of Michel Berthiaume, uh, along with his partner, uh, they started this not-for-profit called Oceans United. They, t- they, they focused in on hydrothermal liquefaction, which is essentially just a giant digester. It liquefies plastic, and then it, it, it processes it. But the traditional hydrothermal liquefaction only really uses 5 to 10% of plastics, which isn't very effective. So they spent millions and millions of dollars to, uh, on with Canadian researchers and Canadian universities to really fine-tune it. And they have working models now. And they are able to use every type of plastic. And they're able to liquefy it. And then eventually what it does is it turn, they can turn it into a biofuel, which then can be converted into a diesel fuel. And the machine that they have developed can, can process 50 tons of plastic a day, optimally, which can then turn that into... 43,000 liters of diesel fuel with about 50 pounds of hard waste, which is pretty good. It sounds pretty good if it works perfectly. Then again, they are still trying to get their patent. They are still, uh, they do have working models. They've actually sold one, uh, a full unit to um, Nigeria, Lagos, an environmental group down there, who are then going to buy probably three more because they have such a huge plastic problem there. So these units can be put into cities, which can then be processing the plastic a lot more efficiently. And they actually turn into a little micro economy. So people can collect plastic, bring it in, sell it. And then because they get they since they produce a diesel fuel out of it, it actually uh, creates some funds for that area. But the really interesting thing is that they've bought these giant, they bought a giant catamaran in Europe, uh, this huge ferry. And I asked him, so is it similar to the ones we have in B.C.? And he said, no, 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 bigger than those. So it's this massive, huge uh, ferry that they have there. One of the, uh, it's a catamaran ferry. And they're putting, um, they put, uh, they're, it's in dry dock, and they're retrofitting it with a giant conveyor belt underneath, which will go around and scoop up garbage in the oceans and process it directly on the ship. And then they can go into ports, they can go anywhere, and they can sell that diesel fuel. So the ships actually become self-sufficient and they just go around and, uh, and eat up the plastic. And the, and the goal is to have five of these operational. The first one, as I said, is getting retrofitted. It will have a full unit on it. And then it's supposed to be launching on Earth Day next year, April 22nd. Hmm, interesting. Now, I was reading your piece, though, on this, and even though this sounds great and it sounds like this is coming up with solutions, there is some pushback or some criticism in that we're using plastics to create another fuel, which is kind of just a big cycle rather than dealing with the root of the problem. Well, that's the that's thing. I mean, that goes back to the age-old problem. What do you do? Which, at what point do you solve a problem? Well, he, he admits this is not a solution. Because the solution would be to stop dumping plastic in the ocean. 
we still have to deal with all the stuff that's there. Um, <clears throat> and this is going to start, by the way, this is getting into our food, uh, food system because fish are eating it where they're pulling it out of animals. They're pulling it out of like, uh, out of sea turtles, uh, out of, uh, uh dead whales, animals that are dying, <clears throat> excuse me, are where they're discovering massive amounts of plastics in their system. Well, how soon is that going to get into our food systems and into our water supplies? This is something we have to deal with. So, so what's the, what's the ideal solution? A stop dumping plastic. That's not going to happen anytime soon because so much of the world is just relies on, on plastic for, for, cause it's a miracle sort of thing that they can, they can use it for, to, uh, in, in Asia, they actually use plastic. If you get a, like a, a drink, they'll put it in a plastic bag. They'll put a hot coffee in a plastic bag. Yeah, I, know, I saw that in, uh, in Vietnam in April, and I thought that's, uh, there was a lot of plastic, definitely. There's a, there's a ton of plastic, and it all gets thrown out, and you, and you see it around there, and you see it in Asia where it's, just, it's floating around, and then it ends up just you know, getting into the, into the water system. So, uh, you know, so, so what do you do? I mean, the one criticism about one of the criticisms is that, yes, you know, you're taking this plastic, and you're, but you're still using the fossil fuel. Well, then you say, well, it's already a plastic, so you might as well use it for something, and the fuel is going to get made anyway. That's sort of the rationale behind that. Besides, you have to get rid of it. Uh, but right now, I mean, honestly, they, this is a, it's a bigger picture that uh, the U.N. has to get involved. Uh, we, Canada, the government has to get involved and try to lead the way in terms of getting, the, getting countries to stop using so much plastic. And you know what? We have to start here because those single-use plastics are just killing us. You know, the straws, the lids, all of this stuff that's just used once and then tossed away. And uh, we really have to look in the mirror to say we're not doing things right before we start preaching to anybody else. All right, Mike, we'll leave it there. We're out of time, but thanks so much. And people can read more about this on our website, and I know you've been reporting on it as well. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Have a great day. We've been talking a lot about gun crime, in part because it's been brought up in the federal election campaign. And you've heard Liberal leader Justin Trudeau saying if re-elected, he would bring in a ban on military-style assault weapons. Uh, we've also been talking about it because of the three shootings or the three shooting incidents that took place in Vancouver's downtown east side, all in the span of about 15 hours. And that led to the mayor of Vancouver saying he would absolutely support giving cities and municipalities the power to ban handguns in their jurisdiction. Kennedy Stewart saying there is no place for handguns in cities. So we did request the mayor come on the program this morning. He was not available to do that. But right now, we are going to bring in Rod Giltaka, who is the CEO and executive director of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. And he joins us on the line. Rod, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. What's your response when you hear comments uh, from Kennedy Stewart? Uh, there have been other municipal leaders as well saying they would absolutely support having the power uh, to bring in their own handgun ban. Well, not to put too sharp of a point on it, but it's 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 based out of of out of really two things. It's based out of ignorance of what their problems really are, and maybe and maybe that's not true. Maybe they just don't want to tackle crime. Um, and it, it seems that they're all mimicking each other. Um, so it seems like Mr. Mr. Stewart is mimicking Mr. Tory in, uh, in Toronto. But I would challenge either mayor to sit down and, uh, and really discuss what their strategy is. Is it that 
people that don't have, that have a firearms license they can't live in the city or what what exactly is their strategy so the liberals haven't really revealed what that is so i guess we're all left speculating does it miss the point do you think as far as we had had these three shooting incidents in vancouver where where things kind of fall apart as we hear about them we report on them we never actually follow through or find out where the guns came from that were used in these incidents my guess is that the people that were shooting are not legal gun owners that are following the rules who have taken the course and got that gun legally uh, to which to me leads to the question well even if you were to ban handguns then it's not as though the criminals are suddenly going to look at that and say, oh, the handguns are banned. Okay, well, we'll stop doing that then. Well, of course they won't. And so, you know, and if, if we were to kind of relate this, uh, this discussion over to the promises of Justin Trudeau uh, to ban military-style assault weapons, um, they haven't defined what those are yet. Um, but we find ourselves at a point where you have all these shootings, uh, you have legal gun owners, everybody's focused about where the guns are coming from. Uh, some might come from break-ins or what have you, um, but uh, some come from across the border. And, you know, it, I think it, this causes a lot of friction between people that lawfully own their firearms and people that use their firearms for nefarious purposes. And I think if, if, uh, if Justin Trudeau had the courage and the determination, along with Mayor Stewart, to solve their crime problem, not only would all of our citizens be better off because there's lower crime, but gun owners are left alone, so everybody's happy. But this just turns into virtue signaling, as far as I'm concerned. How would it work? Or, or, or you touched on this as well, and I think anybody who owns a handgun in Vancouver was also wondering, uh, because even I think the mayor of Surrey in the past, too, has brought up this idea of central storage, that if you were a gun owner, then you had to keep your gun at a central storage facility. Uh, as though It's almost as if they don't understand or they think that gun owners are driving around with their guns, with legal gun owners aren't. Uh, but but how would that work, or do you see it working if suddenly everybody living in a particular city is told that gun that you bought legally is now illegal, you, you have to fix this issue? Well, it's the central storage idea is, uh, is kind of ridiculous because they're, the people that are championing it, is, they're saying that, well, these guns are sourced from, from break-ins. So what we want to do is we want to corral up all the guns in central facilities so the criminals don't have to steal one or two or five guns at, at a time. They can steal, you know, um, you know 4,500 guns at the same time. And again, it's, it's really all this ex, extra talk is a result of people like Mayor Stewart and Justin Trudeau giving up um, on tackling criminals. You know, there's, if you look at Toronto, not so much Vancouver, but if you look at Toronto, criminals are running the city. And, and uh, it's, it's Mayor Tory and, and Mayor Stewart, they've resigned themselves um, to tackling crime. They just think, well, you know what, we're going to create more regulation for law-abiding gun owners uh, uh, to follow, and that should get me you know, four or five or six years from now uh, till we find out that, that that didn't work. So it's, it's a coward's way out, to be sure. Does it seem odd also that here in Vancouver, if we use that as an example, here we have the mayor saying, yes, if I was given the power to ban handguns, I'd be the first one to jump on that train and do that. Uh, we have Vancouver's police chief, who was also uh, is also uh, the head of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, saying his group doesn't support a ban on handguns. Well, yeah, but, you know, yet the Ontario chiefs of police do. So, you know, these these are largely political groups. I do applaud uh, Chief Adam uh, for not bending to the pressure 
to do exactly the same thing that I just described Mayor Stewart is doing, just giving up on criminals and crime and uh, and trying to fool his constituents into thinking that they're doing something. You know, in, in the case of, uh, of Chief Adam, you know, he knows exactly what's going on in his city. I've had a lot of conversations, especially with Toronto city policemen. I had a, a great conversation a couple of weeks ago, and they know exactly what's going on, and they know exactly how to fix it. But there's a lot of, um, uh, I don't know how, political, social political reasons why they don't want to actually fix those problems. Well, and also I would imagine too, part of it is it sounds good if you say you're banning handguns. It sounds like you're actually doing something. So what do you think, or when you have these conversations, what is needed to actually fix it? Well, you have to tackle the root causes of crime in your city. So we have an opioid epidemic that is that is destroying the country. Um, I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of factors at play, and this is why people like uh, Mayor Stewart are so cowardly. They don't want to attack the real problem because if you look at the types of people that are or the socioeconomic position of the people that are committing a lot of these crimes, um, these are people that that are, that's not popular to to attack them or to create offense, um, offensives against them. So a great example of that would be the carding program or TAVIS in Toronto. Um, frontline police officers say that the carding program uh, it wonders for reducing shootings in their, uh, in their city. But the TAVIS program had its own problems and was viewed as a racist policy because where all the shootings uh, were happening were in marginalized and racialized communities. So it's, it, it really puts people like Mayor Stewart, you know, maybe I'll be sympathetic. It puts him in a, in a really awkward position. But at the end of the day, we have to solve our crime problem for the good of everyone in Canada. Uh, I know we're talking handguns and this idea of, of mayors saying uh, handgun bans. Uh, but since uh, we, we're talking about, we, since we uh, put the call out to invite you on the program, it was revealed yesterday that uh, one of the rifles used in the crime spree in BC in the summer, the three murders that took place, one of the rifles purchased and used in that shooting, in those three shootings, so it was an SKS semi-automatic. It was purchased at the Cabela's in Nanaimo uh, the day that the two uh, young men who died in a murder-suicide, the day that they set out on that spree. Uh, We were told that that gun was purchased legally. He bought it at the Cabela's and and went on his way. That's going to have a lot of people questioning the gun laws and questioning why somebody would be able to do that. What's your take on on that information and the fact that that information was revealed? Well, there's, you know, it's it's funny because I just saw an interview with with, uh, the fellow that drove uh, over about 50 people in, in Toronto. Um, I, I watched that interview this morning while I was trying to get caffeinated uh, for, for the interview this morning. And, you know, it, it's I think it's been proven over and over again that people are, who are intent on causing harm um, will do it regardless. Um, I think, you know, the logical, uh, mature thing to do is to look at the amount of gun owners that are licensed, the amount that perpetrate crimes like this, and determine whether licensed gun owners represent a disproportionate risk to public safety. So an interesting thing for your listeners to, uh, to consider is, the, uh, is Bill Blair has been talking about straw purchasing. So this is where apparently one of the ways that, uh, that criminals get their guns. Um, two independent researchers can only find 26 unique instances of straw purchasing in Canada since 2003. And even if it was 10, 100 times as many, law-abiding gun owners, it actually equates to seven one-thousandths of one percent of gun owners engaging in that kind of activity. So we really have to be honest with ourselves and say, 
do you know the, does the fact that people can own guns does that represent a disproportionate risk to public safety than anything else and uh and that's really how how uh, honest people uh, determine what uh, the, the type of action that we need to take Right. It's an interesting, interesting number, interesting figures. But with straw purchasing, we really would only be able to track uh, or restricted weapons, wouldn't we? Because if you have an unrestricted, couldn't you purchase You could purchase that or sell it. There wouldn't really be a paper trail. No, there wouldn't. But um, in the cases like the one you described, we know where that uh, gun came from. We know who perpetrated that crime. And, you know, people, you know, one one in one in a million people in Canada, it's not even one in a million, it's actually less than that. But Let's say for for sake of this conversation, one in a million people go crazy and then they hurt other citizens. There's nothing. There really is no evidence to say that they wouldn't have rented a van and, and ran over a bunch of people or they wouldn't have created a pressure cooker bomb from a pressure cooker they bought at a flea market. And, you know, and it's not it's not that, that anyone is insensitive, um, but I think we need to th- think really carefully before we victimize millions of Canadians, because there's millions that le- legally own guns for the actions of one or two people. It's just it's just not the way that our society works. All right. Uh, Rod, we will leave it there. We're out of time, but I always appreciate you coming on the program. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, a new park is going to officially open open later today in Richmond. And the reason we're talking about this this morning is because it's a little different than other parks in that it's elevated. We are going to bring in a gentleman by the name of Peter Webb. He is the Senior Vice President of Development at Concord Pacific to talk a little bit more about this project and how this particular park came to be. Peter Webb, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, so I understand, or from what I'm told, in Richmond, if you're building in Richmond, parking lots have to be above ground because of the water table and because of the physical landscape in Richmond. So parking lots have to be above ground, but this park is very above ground. How did this all come about? Well, uh, I guess when we say it's very above ground, it's only slightly above the general uh, uh, ground plane in Richmond. But it came about because Concord was able to assemble a very large piece of property in Richmond uh, at Ketchison and uh, the Sexsmith and uh, Hazelbridge Roads. And similar to our Expo Lands development in Vancouver, we create community around parks. So one of our main focuses was to put a large-scale park on this development. And the interesting thing about Richmond is that because of the high water table, typically parkades get built above grade and then the buildings wrap and cocoon the building. But all of the buildings in Richmond typically sort of look bulky as a result. In this case, because we had such a large property, we were able to bury the parking lot over a large, large area and only effectively elevate the ground plane one level from the typical uh, height of the land in, in Richmond and then plant over the entire area with a park that became is now becoming and being dedicated as a 1.6-acre public park. Hmm. So it's a park literally above a parking lot. Yes. In fact, to rewrite Joni Mitchell's song, we made paradise and buried a parking lot. <laughs> it's slightly different lyrics to the uh, the original <laughs> song. Um, 1.6 million, because that's, that's I think, what also sticks out about this. Sorry, sorry 1.6 acre. acre. Sorry, it's yeah, a $3 a million. Little, it's almost, yeah, it's almost... It's almost 80,000 square feet, the park, at 1.6 acres, and $3 million was Concord's cost to build the park. And is that different as well? Because when we think about parks and public space, uh, in Vancouver it's different. There's a park board. But in most cases, it's the city council and the the council of whatever the, the, the area is that's in charge of that. So is this different that it's Concord that's paying for the park, not the city? 
This is quite a bit different. In the process of developing our rezoning to build this community, we negotiated with the city to provide a large area central park to the project. And it's really also for the residents of our project, which is over a thousand homes. Um, And then the idea here is that we dedicate the park to the city. uh, uh, But the interesting um, difference about this public park and others is that uh, the maintenance of the ongoing maintenance costs of the park itself will be borne by the strata buildings. There's about six strata towers around the park that will pay the maintenance through perpetuity. But it'll be open to the general public. It's not as though just the people paying the fees for the upkeep will be using it. No, no, absolutely. It's an open park for general public and it's easily accessible on almost all sides by roadways and walkways to the park. It's quite a beautiful thing. Um, It covers what would have been about a 1300 car parking lot over a long, smooth, flat area, almost at ground level in Richmond. And do you anticipate, or because it is such a different model, is there any, do you anticipate any kind of pushback there in that if I'm paying strata fees, strata fees generally go for your building, for the maintenance of your building and what the people in the strata use. Um, Now they're going to be using it for for a park for the general public. I mean, if there's damage or something that needs to be fixed, it's going to come from the strata fees rather than from taxes. Actually, if you think of it this way, the amount of area per home when we normally build a project that would be um, a a designated sort of open area landscape for that home, cumulatively, as you add more homes to development and create a larger project, cumulatively, you end up with quite a large area. In this case, 1.6 acres of landscape area was generated by that number of homes altogether. And as a result of consolidating it, we're now able to develop it as a larger scale park. And so as these people maintain, pay pay the maintenance for the ongoing use of the park, they would have otherwise been doing the same thing in a much smaller project, but over a much smaller landscape area in their uh, general garden area for the project itself. So the net effect to the owners is the same financially. All right. Uh, Describe it for us, if you can. What does the park look like? Well, the park uh, has some strong uh, design uh, themes around uh, water and uh, waterways. So there's a lot of little ponds and lakes and islands in the park. There's child play areas with, and there's exercise equipment for adult use. I mean, it's sort of fixed exercise equipment. There's a grove of flowering cherry trees. Um, and it is, uh, it's designed uh, uh, with uh, the help of a Sherman tie, which is a feng shui master, uh, for uh, kind of using those methodologies of designing to make a sympathetic outdoor space. It also includes an off-leash dog area. Hmm, very nice, because uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people, I mean, anywhere you go, there's always a demand for that, I would imagine. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, th- and this is something, so is this something Concord has done elsewhere as well, or are you guys kind of leading the charge in finding creative ways to build and to create more park space? That's what we do. The uh, uh, Concord, as a, uh, being a master plan developer, of course, starting with the Expo lands, which we've been developing for 30 years now in False Creek, we're doing the same in Toronto and Surrey and Burnaby, uh, where we consolidate large properties so that we have much more flexibility about how we can create community. And we typically create community through things like community centers. In this case, arts units are also part of the project. But then we also have this larger park opportunity, which we find. Uh, neighborhoods really can focus around the the park concept. Typically, in most of the other cities, we don't have this water table problem. So very often parks are, in fact, uh, parkades underneath, and then we uh, uh, plant over all of the park area uh, on top of the parkade and create this sort of space for the residents to use. In this case, 
the uh, parkade landscape area uh, that's now a park is a, is almost at grade in Richmond, which is unusual. Typically, uh, these parkades are well elevated well above uh, the sea level table. In this case, because of the large site, we could spread it out over a much larger area and not stack as many levels of parking, which really means that the park is very close to the common uh, sea level elevation. And and do you as a developer then get benefits from this or if you go to get the permit to get approval for a project, do you find if you're putting in there that you're going to be creating park space and, and doing this, do you then get get uh, benefits or get more density or get things from the city for doing that? Typically, these things come with benefits, but uh, the biggest benefit is that we create a community, which is, of course, our branding at Concord Pacific. Um, and so the other benefits would be, and through negotiation with the city, we were able to achieve a little higher densities spread out around the site. So the towers really uh, maintain their normal, typical sizes, but they can move a little further apart because of the large site area to create the parkland. All right. And today, so today it will officially open. I know the mayor is coming out. What's going to be happening uh, this afternoon? Well, at 1230 at uh, 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 Ketchison and uh, Hazelbridge, where the park is located, we actually have the mayor coming and we'll have our landscape architect there to speak about the project and myself. And uh, we'll, there'll be face painting for kids and things of that nature. So there'll be food and things to do. All right. Uh, hopefully the weather cooperates. It looks like it uh, likely will. Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us and talking about this. Uh, sounds like a great sure. space. Great. Thanks very much.